Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello out there, fans of Why Are People Into That? So, I can now finally officially announce the huge project I've been working on, the one I've been teasing you about, the one that's been consuming my time for the past year. Some of you probably already know from following me on Twitter and Instagram or from the message that I sent to my Patreon patrons, but for the rest of you, here it is. Here's the news. I am writing a science fiction comic book series for DC Vertigo. Uh, Okay, so um, what can I tell you? If you're not familiar with Vertigo, it's like the imprint of DC Comics DC being the company that is behind some superheroes that you might have heard of, like uh, Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman, just, you know, folks like that. And, And the Vertigo, like if those superheroes are like the PG-13 comics, like, for teenagers, then, like, Vertigo is, like, the rated R, like, for adults. So, like, high-concept, philosophical, more violent, more explicitly sexual. You're gonna hear me say this over and over again. Vertigo comics, Sandman, The Invisibles, Swamp Thing, Hellblazer, Preacher, was uh, just, like, absolutely what I grew up on as a teenager. So, to be given the opportunity to write one has just been so much of a dream come true. It was like a dream I didn't even know to dream. What else can I tell you? Uh, The comic is called Safe Sex. And it takes place in a not-too-distant future America where sexuality is policed by an increasingly conservative government. And the only people that can save the world from oppression are a bunch of queer punk sex workers. Uh, so I guess you can take the nonfiction writer out of her medium, but you can't take the nonfiction out of her writing. Anyway, it's a made-up story, I swear. If you know my work through this podcast or any of my other journalism about sex cultures, or you have just been a a fan of, of Tina Horn, the sex worker, something that you might not know is how deeply I have loved comic books literally my whole life, like since I was a baby. And what a big fan I continue to be of, of genre fiction in literature and, and movies and, and comics. So to have the opportunity to write science fiction for the first time in the comic book medium for the first time, but also to be able to write about people like you, presumably, if you're listening to this podcast, 
queer people, sex workers, kinky people, leather people, perverts, non-monogamous people, sluts is just, I, I keep, I keep saying it, but it's an absolute dream come true. And I have an amazing team. Mike Dowling is drawing the comic and Tula Lote is doing the covers. And my editor at Vertigo, Amadeo Totoro, whose idea it was for me to write a comic book in the first place, is a really amazing editor who is pushing me to make something really incredible for you all. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm just putting in an early wish that Wired People Into That fans will become fans of Safe Sex the comic book. Also, when Safe Sex starts coming out monthly in your local comic book store in January of 2019, it's probably going to be like all I'm talking about really, but I, I really wanted you, my loyal listeners, to hear it from my voice, in part because this podcast, Why Are People Into That, is a huge part of the reason that I got this dream job in the first place. So I just want to take a minute to thank you. I want to thank you for being a pervert who supports indie pervert media. And I want to thank you for listening, for telling your friends about the show, for writing me on the internet to let me know what the show means to you, and for helping me to continue to believe that this little slutty dispatch might actually make the world a better place. So, like I said, in the coming months, you're going to hear the backstory about how this project came to be, and you're going to meet all the characters and learn all about the world of Safe Sex, the comic book. Why are people into that? Listeners will totally get very privileged first looks, especially if you pledge to my Patreon at patreon.com slash T-I-N-A-H-O-R-N. But for now, I have a shitload of work to do. So the pod is going to continue coming out every other week. That's my goal. And I'm going to keep doing live shows in New York City and wherever I'm traveling. And in the meantime, you can know I am toiling away, learning how to write fiction for basically the first time. So to celebrate this announcement of Safe Sex, I thought it would be a great time to release a recording I have from a sex work-themed literary event I organized back in January at McNally Jackson, a wonderful indie bookstore here in New York City. The event was called Adventures in Stigma, and I was joined by Jacqueline Francis, aka Jack the Stripper, Aya de Leon, and Aquinos to discuss writing about sex work. Shout out to McNally Jackson for hosting. Shout out to Nora for organizing. Special thanks to Justine McClellan for recording live in the bookstore, which is no easy feat, let me tell you. Okay, here's the description of the event. From I Was a Teenage Dominatrix to The Happy Hooker, classic sex workbooks have been limited to pretty one-dimensional points of view. In the 21st century, sex workbooks are as prismatic as the workers themselves. Join sex work journalist and podcaster Tina Horn for a panel on the exciting and nuanced ways sex work is being written about right now. Learn how strippers around the world represent themselves on topics ranging from snacks to the male ego in Jack the Stripper's crowdfunded, self-published Striptastic. 
learn why Aya de Leon chose escort characters as the protagonists of her Justice Hustlers crime series. Learn how Aquinos uses both her blogging and performance art as activism. We'll be discussing everything from stigma to genre to branding to high heels in an effort to create a real and honest portrait of the modern literary sex worker. Boom. Okay, sound good? So, happy belated International Whores Day, and I hope all of you have a safe, joyful, decolonized, glittery, anti-capitalist pride. You really do sound like you're uh, doing story time in the library. I talk to, like, drunk men all day. I have to talk like this. Before you go... <laughs> this is like getting ready. Okay, so for lady identifying people, look hot. You're going to feel a lot more confident if you're feeling like the 11 that you are. Fact, women are nicer when they feel fly as fuck. There's a lot of swearing in this. I hope it's okay, McNally Jackson. Um, I'm like really not the nicest person when I look really drab, so like I can relate to this. This is like advice I would give myself. I did go to a strip club in damp jeans one time, and it didn't go very well. So like... Look cute. This is like an amendment though, right? If you plan on buying a lap dance, wear pants. Most lap dances start with man spreading those gams. It's more comfortable for all parties involved if you opt out of the mini skirt. And tip number three is hit up the ATM. Strip clubs do not do accept credit cards, but the surcharges and ATM fees are atrociously high. Pick a budget, more on that later, and withdraw it in advance. It's just like fast forward. How am I doing? You're doing great. great. Okay. <laughs> Are you guys learning a lot? Yeah. Right. Good. Okay. What do we have here? Let's see. Oh, okay. No, here. Oh yeah. Which no, one do you like? Please do this one. This oh, okay. One okay. So here are some examples of who you sh an example of like what kind of guy you shouldn't be or girl or person. Non doesn't really matter what your gender is, but this guy right here, he's going like this. Because this, really, this is what the guy did when he asked me this. He's like, oh my god, you're a stripper? What's the grossest thing a guy's ever done to you? <laughs> and I respond, this person here, that's me, responds, what you're asking me right now is pretty gross. <laughs> so, pro tip, don't ask people to relive their trauma for your entertainment. Hello. You know? Or if you do, you better have emptied out your entire bank account. That's right. And be planning on giving it to her. So also, don't be this guy. There's another illustration here. I don't know how you guys can see it. But there's this guy in like expensive jeans, a white t-shirt, and a beard. And he's like, do you like a job? And the stripper goes, I do. And he goes, no, you don't. Oh my god. And she goes, OK, Kyle. Since you know that I hate my job, and in spite of this, you're still here. What do you think that says about you? And then the redhead in the corner chimes in and goes, it says you're a rapey sadist, Kyle. <laughs> Don't be Kyle. Don't be Kyle. <laughs> Don't be Kyle. One more page? Okay. And, the, and then the last one is please don't be this chick. This chick showed up. She's not a stripper. Okay? She's wearing Ugg boots. That's indicator number one. She's not a stripper. She's wearing yoga pants. Oh, no. Okay? <laughs> and she's wearing a lavender peplum blouse. 
And she's dancing like this. Very detailed. Okay, that's indicator number three that she's not a stripper. I know they're not really detailed drawings, but my mind is very detailed. That's why it, it, like, I can really like. We need like the director's out. cut of yeah, like audio commentary. Of this. You can totally see the UGG boots from you here. Can. Though. Yeah. You can't well, miss UGG boots. The UGG, the they're UGG really comfortable, UGG. but like, yeah. wear them inside um, at your house. So it says. Ladies, showing up to a strip club to dance is like going to a restaurant and bringing your own food. You just don't do don't it. Don't do it. Don't you know, do it. if you want to be a stripper, you can't. Anybody, you know, but you have to do these things. You have to show up, audition. Everybody has to audition. And you have to pay to work there. Okay? That's how strip clubs work. So if you're willing to show up, audition, get naked for free in front of a manager in the corner who decides in like four seconds if he thinks he'd like to fuck you one day or not... And then after that, you get hired, and then you pay them in anywhere between like thirty and one hundred and fifty dollars. Then you can get up and dance at the strip club. So you're welcome to try it. You just have to go through the steps first. So there's more information on how to not be a dick in a strip club. You can get it here tonight, and it's ten bucks. <laughs> yes. Woo! Amazing. Aya, do you want to go next? I can. Yeah, please okay. do. Pull this up. I um. I decided I wanted to read from my new. Um, <laughs> this is this is yeah. This is my dream. Um, <laughs> yeah. So this is um, coming out in uh, end of May, um, and this is from the Accidental Mistress, and this is from the perspective of Lily, um, who pops up in book two, uh, the boss, and she is um, a dark brown dancer from Trinidad. She's a labor organizer at her strip club, and she came to the U.S. undocumented. And this third book, uh, so she's one of the organizers of the stripper union in book two. Um, and uh, this third book is about her and her sister. Um, in some ways, it centers her sister, Violet, who is lighter-skinned and deeply caught up in assimilation and respectability politics. But I, um, I was trying to decide what I wanted to read, and this piece was really inspired by the New, York the New York stripper strike and the talk about colorism and racism in the clubs. And so shout out to all the folks who are involved in that and who really took a strong stand. And um, yeah, so <clears throat> uh, this is from The Accidental Mistress. And the only other thing that I'll say is like, I create all of these sort of over-the-top hip-hop and uh, dance hall characters. And so this character is fictional for anyone who's not current with dance hall. Um, <laughs> Lily hadn't always been immune to the vicious slice of colorism. At 19, she had been nearly a year in New York and had just started stripping. It still felt luxurious, opulent, the money, the glamour, the attention from men. Of course, she wasn't every man's type, but there were plenty of men who would walk right past the slim blondes and head straight for her stage. She towered over them like some sort of black goddess, collecting their bills as tribute. She wasn't the Malibu Barbie girl next door type who had mass appeal here in the US, but she carefully built a niche clientele. She made her money and didn't worry about what other girls were doing. The first club where she worked was huge and had lots of VIPs, finance guys, politicians, lawyers, artists. Half the US celebrities were still unknown to her. And what did it matter anyway? You had to be white or Latina to dance in VIP, or mixed and really light. Some of the American black women complained about it, but Lily had just shrugged it off. Compared to Trinidad, everything here seemed to have white people in the center of it. This was no different. Until one night. She recognized the man in the center of a knot of women in VIP. 
Even sitting, he was tall, six foot six, dark as mahogany, strapping as fuck. Mirrored shades on his face with a full-lipped scowl, she stopped, faltered, the Jamaican dance hall legend, Bamboozala. Throughout her teens, he dominated the dance hall charts throughout the US and the Caribbean. In particular, his YOLO anthem, Me Do What Me Want, had been her theme song in high school. It brought back the taste of house parties she'd snuck out to, clandestine kisses, and the first time a boy had gone down on her. And there he was, just on the other side of the velvet rope in the club where she worked. He was impossible to miss in the crush of white and barely brown women, honey and platinum and strawberry blonde hair. Because he had on his mirrored shades, she couldn't see the moment when he noticed her, but she did see him stand up and walk toward her. Her eyes must have widened. She had on a bikini top with her full breasts spilling out and a matching thong bottom. She had a line of rhinestones from below her bottom lip to her navel. She had felt dazzling when she got dressed, but not nearly as dazzled as when Bamboozala stood up and walked over to her. He knocked the rope aside. He turned to his handlers and demanded to know where they had been hiding Lily. He removed his shades, walked over, and sidled up close to her. At six feet with her heels on, they stood eye to eye. He whispered about sending these skinny pale girls off the couch so he could have a lap dance with her. She flushed with delight. He asked her name in that deep, rumbling voice of his. His breath smelled of marijuana and hard liquor. Lily came out of her mouth before she could even stop herself, could offer her stage name, Cleopatra. He grinned at her and began to walk her into his booth. The other girls didn't like it. With every additional dancer who came in, the money would have to be split one more way. Before she could step past the rope, a security guard rolled up and blocked her way. Sorry, she doesn't work VIP, he said to the artist. Bamboozala turned his head slowly. What you say? I'm very sorry, sir, the security guard said. Company policy, she's got a shift on the floor below. It was true. But Lily knew better. VIPs like Bumboozala could make their own rules. She waited for him to say it. The nearly patented phrase that had dominated the airwaves when she was 15. <laughs> the phrase that she and all her friends had said to each other, unsuccessfully mimicking that deep voice, me do what me want. <laughs> Lily's lip had already begun to curl toward the smirk of triumph when he stepped her past the velvet rope and claimed her like his queen, the two of them tall and dark against the red couch, the gold wallpaper, the other pale girls. That was what humiliated her the most. Her hand lifted to him, expecting him to take it. She hadn't even noticed her arm rising. The split second she forgot her place in the strip club in the US. The moment she fell into the fantasy that this strong man would rescue her, elevate her above all other women, she heard the music in her head, the throbbing bass of his song, and expected the lyrics to fall from his mouth, me do what me want. But he didn't say it, just shrugged, put his shades back on, returned to the couch, left her standing there, a line of rhinestones from beneath her lower lip to her navel. Her hand extended just enough that she couldn't play it off, hadn't been thirsty and left high and dry. 
Instead, it was the girls on the couch whose lips curved in smug smiles, one less dancer to share with, their positions unthreatened by this dusky intruder. Lily didn't dance on the downstairs, downstairs stage that night. She turned on her six-inch heels and strode away from Bambuzula's booth directly to the dressing room, back ramrod straight and ass switching with vengeance. She got dressed and walked off the job, tears gumming and her false eyelashes in the taxi on the way home. She never went back to that club, could never face those smirking girls again. She heard they were hiring at the One-Eyed King. I don't even smoke, and I need a cigarette. No, okay. Uh, Aquinas, are you ready? Uh, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so like nervous. Um, so you're fabulous. Uh, thank you. Because <sighs> I don't read out loud to people. I just talk shit on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> just pretend so that that is what this is. <laughs> I'm gonna try. <laughs> um, so uh, this morning, um, I finally recorded my first podcast for my Patreon um, that Molly Crabapple forced me to do. <laughs> so um, I, you know, obviously have to write out some of the scripts before I talk. So this is some of it where I'm discussing Aziz Ansari and Grace. Um, so um, I don't care if you hate me after. <laughs> Grace, so I'm not starting, I'm just starting like in the middle, because some of it I didn't write, I just kind of you know, typed out in the middle. <sighs> Grace wasn't the perfect victim. She willingly went with him, and what do you know, women should never go willingly anywhere with men because there is no way from there on that she won't deserve her fate. And women only get raped when they are drunk or dressed a certain way, and if they are not willingly giving sex, and the only time and places women should go places with men is if it's in public because consensual sex and rape and sexual assault can never happen in public. Whore logic. Why did Aziz invite her to his place? Surely he had to have known that she lacked self-control and respect for women's bodies, that he should not have given her that invite. And surely if the only time women come to men's homes is to fuck, why do women in general even go to men's homes? We are made for fucking. Unless we are married to them, we should never enter their homes because of course the privacy of a man's home is the only place sexual misconduct can take place. Mm -hmm. Women out here getting raped and stoned when they are fully fucking covered head to toe. Mm -hmm. But the only type of women that get sexually assaulted are those that ask for it by dressing in workout gear. Mm -hmm. Did you see that video on my Facebook last night where I posted it, this woman is like walking home. Of course you didn't see it, because other than Janice, nobody's on my fucking Facebook page. But <laughs> this woman, she's walking home in her gym clothes, and this guy, this random dude just rolls up on her and taps her on her ass five times. So a lot of the commentary on that video was saying that why was she dressed like that? I mean, why the fuck is this bitch going to the gym in her you know, workout clothes or coming home from the gym in her fucking workout clothes? And then they accused her of not responding properly to it. She didn't look like she was mad about it, you know, because of course you can't be in fucking shock. Mm. You're supposed to want to, you know, respond to them by chopping the fucking dicks off, which, you know, I kind of wish we were able to do that. But when we do that, then they'll put us under the jail. So think of Syntonia Brown's case mm -hmm. where she was actually a sex traffic victim and she killed her abuser and she's pretty much under the fucking jail right now. Mm -hmm. Whore logic. 
are the only acceptable victims to you children, because actually there's been cases where children as young as even six have been held accountable for their own rape by adult males. So who is safe actually from your blame? When do men get to be held accountable? Women can't drink and pass out in peace because there will be some man with his dry dick out ready to violate. Meanwhile, I've seen men pass out in the street and no one even thinks to touch them. That, my friend, is power. Grace is accused of being salty because she saw him winning awards. Yeah, when you see your abuser getting praise and you know he's a piece of shit, whether or not he's winning awards, you get salty too. Especially when he's speaking out against sexual assault and writing books about dating. Fuck out of here. <laughs> Aziz's first display of power and privilege was ordering whatever kind of wine he wanted for Grace. If you had said to yourself that she should have known then that that means it's clear, if you had said to yourself that she should have known at that moment that he was a piece of shit, then that means it's clear that you know that he was a piece of shit. His next assertion of power, privilege, and gross male entitlement came when he just had to get the fuck out of the restaurant, never once thinking that Grace may want to stay and, you know, was just having a good fucking time with him in that moment. But Grace went along with it because, trust me, women are socialized to please men and never question anything. Are you a woman listening to this and going, oh no, that wouldn't have been me? Well, congrats, bitch. <laughs> It's easier to say what you would have done, but why don't you tell us what you didn't do when you were in situations like this, right? Because a lot of us become this angry woman because we are tired. So you didn't just become like this overnight, you were dealing with this shit. So what did you do before these situations happened? You just didn't walk away from it. You just dealt with it because that's what the fuck you do. You deal with it until you get tired. Next assertion of power from Aziz, he just assumed Grace wanted to fuck. According to her account, and I believe it word for word, because I've encountered this kind of guy too many times, he just wanted to go grab a condom. He never thought to check with her. And then she explicitly said, let's chill. But what did he do? Just like what about every other man would do in this situation. Went on to do what he would with her, what he felt like, and even made demands of what she should do to him. And she did it. And that's when you see how the socializing is different. Mm -hmm. And that's when you see that men need to be taught how to treat women. Even after she moved away, he kept on. And I won't even bother giving you a scenario you can relate to on this, because I know on some level we have all experienced this. But because it's a woman crying sexual uneasiness, you won't believe it anyway. Because the penis is always to be respected. So fuck what she's saying. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much for writing that and Thank for reading you. it tonight. Mm -hmm. You are just as good at reading out loud as you are at talking <laughs> shit on the internet. Definitely. We've definitely learned that tonight. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to read a little bit from my book, Love Not Given Lightly, which is about sex workers in the Bay Area. And this is about the dungeon that I worked at in the East Bay. When I closed the session door behind me, I would always order my submissive client to strip, fold up his clothes, and get down on his knees, forehead pressed to the floor. He probably never imagined that this domineering goddess had swept the room that morning wearing basketball shorts. 
Then I would stalk around him, taking my time, savoring the click-clack of my heels on hardwood. Dramatically, I would slap my own hand with a riding crop in time to my burned CD. Man, this really can this really dates me that mm -hmm. I was listening to burned <laughs> CDs. Okay, uh, slapping my <laughs> slapping my own hand with a riding crop in time to my burned CD copy of Charles Mingus's Black Saint and the Sinner Lady. I'd drag the crop along his exposed back, raising his hair and goosebumps, and reminding him that he was surrendering himself to me. The first thing I always asked a client was, what was the last thing you jerked off to? Or what did you think about when you first started masturbating? I asked because it made them delightfully uncomfortable, but mostly I asked because I wanted to know. <laughs> Those secrets fed me and filled me up. I was so lucky to have, and I'm not pretending to be the first drama queer turned whore to say this, the best paid improv gig in town. <laughs> more, than, <laughs> more than being a dominatrix, I was a highly valued, living, breathing, storytelling machine. Part of the reason this worked was that I was fueled, not drained, by the stories my clients wanted me to tell them and the stories they gave me in return. During my four years of working shifts at the Gates, that's the dungeon where I worked, and later when I went independent, renting dungeon studios from other women, I did sometimes embody the stereotype of a dominatrix. I spoke in a sinister velvet purr to a revolving door of strange men. I tied 100,000 half hitches and said the word bad enough for a lifetime. <laughs> Men looked at me with fear and desire and coughed up their cash, which I used to buy red meat, red wine, BART fare, bike tubes, custom guitars, comic books, and one round-trip plane ticket to Brazil. Some of the things I said on the clock were objectively dark, I suppose, but the darkness never followed me out the door. On the contrary, I always left work feeling elated the way I do after watching, say, a David Cronenberg movie. I looked depravity in the face, and the world never stopped turning. My curiosity took me pretty far, as did my tolerance for strong smells. I interrogated and I teased. I smothered men's faces with my ass, admiring my own made-up face in the mirror as I counted the moments until I would allow them to breathe again. It's the best time to check your makeup. <laughs> I never really felt comfortable like looking at myself in the mirror like until that moment. Anyway. Um, I covered, I covered my arms in latex veterinarian gloves and stuck myself elbow deep in the all too willing rectum of 60 year old man, pumping him to countless shuddering internal orgasms. I electrocuted and pierced scrotums, bound them in cotton rope until they were purple, seemingly ready to pop, and then kicked them with my pleaser pumps as hard as I possibly could. Yeah. <laughs> you wish, Joe. <laughs> Men, we know each other. Men, men brought toys to share, devices they had found or made and cherished for decades. Some of them brought scripts, and, ex and some expected me to intuit what they needed. I locked them in closets, cages, and leather hoods. I humiliated men for their penis size relative to the size of my imaginary boyfriend, ridiculing them for never being able to satisfy me with that sorry excuse for a dick. <laughs> I threatened to throw my client in the back of a van and drive them up and down Polk Street, using them to make some extra cash. I dressed them in negligees and feather boas and instructed them to walk in kitten heels. I gave them lessons in femininity that I myself had only recently learned. <laughs> what? 
I was a jukebox of hits, a lusty space alien, an exploited babysitter, a naive niece, a sultry librarian, a specialized therapist, the captain of a slave ship, a corrupt governess, and a bossy lesbian girlfriend. I said the most facile sentences imaginable and watched a man's eyes roll back in his head in ecstasy. Men have swallowed my coffee piss and beer spit, licked my sweaty feet, and choked on my strap-on cock. I once fucked my gorgeous coworker with my hands while a client poured cheap Chardonnay all over us, ruining the sheets. <laughs> on one glorious day, I kicked open the door, strode into the room, and decked a man in the face with a key lime pie. <laughs> Yet all of these scenes, everything my clients and I negotiated, were no more the point of the gates than the plot of a movie is the point of a multiplex. The point was that a woman created a business and a bunch of other women helped her to run it. For most of my 20s, being a dominatrix was my job, my choice, my danger, and my life. Since I was a teenager, I had made money lots of different ways. Barista, boardwalk clerk, pizza place manager, head shop receiver, marketing intern, magazine intern, actual babysitter. I worked in a recycling center collecting cans from drifters. I sat at a desk and wrote copy about fine wine, pretending I wasn't spending most of my shift making lists about bands on MySpace, also dating myself, oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Professional dominatrix, as flamboyant as it sounds, was the first completely sensible job I ever had, and still has been, by the way. I suspect, I, I suspect, I'm here from the future to tell you, Dina, I suspect I will never work a job more sensible. Still haven't. The exchange of labor, time, and wage always felt exactly correct. At the end of a session, when a client was putting his street clothes back on, he often asked me, what's your favorite part about being a dominatrix? Of course, I usually told him it was the glamour, the clothes, the chance to control men, something about female supremacy. In reality, my favorite part was always the part where they gave me their money. Mm. Yes. Factual, factual. Hell yeah. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, why are people into that, fans? Here's hoping your Pride Month is a safe and joyful one filled with resistance and connection. The Pleasure Chest has been serving the LGBTQ community for nearly 50 years, so you can count on them for queer-specific gear for pleasure and self-expression. On Thursday, June 21st at the 2nd Avenue store in Manhattan, Carly is hosting More Fats, More Femmes, which is just like a great fucking title, a workshop dedicated to body confidence in the bedroom and beyond. Follow Pleasure Chest on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and visit PleasureChest.com for events, shopping, and much more. Okay, now back to the show. 
right, so I have some questions for our panelists and we'll leave a little bit of time if you all have questions as well, but they have to be questions. You can't just wait for your chance to tell us what you think about what we're saying. That's not what a Q&A is. Okay. <laughs> uh, what is everybody's favorite book by a sex worker or book about sex work or alternately an article, a blog, a movie, a video, or an Instagram feed about sex work that you would love to recommend? Do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Um, I One of my favorite books is by Laurel Augustine. Um, uh, Penny, I know you know the name of this book. I saw you walk in. You can't escape me. The one where she's talking about... Yes. What's Say it, it again. Sex at the margins. And she's talking about, um, you know, women migrating into sex work. And it's it seems so unbelievable for uh, people... Well, I don't want to say people, the trafficking enthusiasts, they, they find it to be unbelievable that women actually travel to fuck. <laughs> I don't know. Well, how amazing. Um, so that, <laughs> that book kind of highlights, you know, a lot of the, uh, the traveling women do for different forms of labor. And it's really interesting. So, yeah, Laura Augustine, she's pretty brilliant, and it's uh, one of my favorite books. Fantastic. Aya? It's hard to pick, but just for tonight, I want to uh, shout out the Spread Magazine book, Hell yeah. um, which was just an incredible magazine, for those of you who knew it, um, Spread Illuminating the Sex Industries. And magazines uh, may end, but the feminist press decided to do an anthology, or a, not an anthology, a uh, like a greatest hit, yeah yeah, 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 which is wonderful to really kind of preserve that piece of organizing that folks in the industry did for a long period of time. Hell yeah. Yes, yes to all of those. I really, a really formative book for me before I got into stripping was King Kong Theory by Virginie oh, Devant. Yes. Oh, she's so amazing. These French women are so unapologetically bitchy. <laughs> love them so much and then Colette which is I have like the anthology of Colette and I just kind of like look at it when I need to and like put money in it because it makes me feel good and that's really amazing and another piece of culture that's on my neck right now is Showgirls oh yeah um, it's a film oh my if god that's hilarious <laughs> Um, no, I love Showgirls. If you had minus like the two and a half minute rape scene, which is completely gratuitous and awful and violent and unnecessary, yeah. the movie is amazing because it's some oh, European dude's idea of what it's like to be an American woman, so and that's bad. why it's so funny. So watch it knowing some like super old grandpa directed it. It changes the way you experience it because you see it as a fantasy and not as like an actual narrative of two women with like rife lesbian tension, which is also wonderful. But I love that movie and I could watch it over and over and over again, but I always fast forward through the rape scene. Jack the Stripper, if we wanted to see showgirls on the big screen, maybe not in New York City, but like what, what if, well, like Yonkers? As a matter of fact, <laughs> if you're going to Yonkers on February 25th, <laughs> I will be there with Kristen Soleil, who I toured the Stripastic with. She wrote an amazing book, another great book um, that isn't necessarily about sex work, but it's about sex witchery, which is what we all do. It's I called be, Witches, Sluts, it's Feminist. Called Witches, Sluts, Feminist. It's yeah. so good. I will be in Yonkers for the first time <laughs> screening Showgirls. You guys should all come. Oh it's gonna be really hilarious. fun. Oh, I love Great. 
I was actually in Yonkers today, so I don't, I don't know. I what definitely I'll be doing thought you were going to say I was actually in Showgirls. <laughs> Little known fact, no. Uh, yeah, how was Yonkers today? I was really going through Yonkers. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Metro North. Yeah. Wave. I want to recommend a book called The Other Hollywood by uh, Lex McNeil and another. This is so typical that it's co-written by a woman, and I don't remember her name. I'm awful. Lex McNeil was one of the founders of. Uh, punk magazine, which is a uh, magazine that invented the term punk to describe the music we all like. Uh, he and Julian uh, McCain did this oral history of punk called Please Kill Me, which is a very, very important work of nonfiction. And uh, and then they did, a, they sort of did a similar oral history, haha, oral history of, of the porn industry called The Other Hollywood. And I, I really recommend it. I think that's what's really great about the way that they frame the oral history, and this is really vital for something like the sex industry, where when people write about it, they bring a lot of, especially people who have not actually participated in it, they bring a lot of like confirmation bias, and like they think that their feelings are facts, it, like the other, you know? And the other Hollywood is is just, you know, the interviews that they did, and the the sort of like genius of it is is how they present the the interviews in, in different ways and like two different people talking about the same thing and contradicting each other. Once I got pulled over, speaking of punk, I was touring the country with my punk band and we got pulled over in South Dakota like you do and we all had to like sit on the side of the road at 6 a.m. and I just have this very vivid memory. I mean, we were a bunch of white kids so I feel a lot of privilege and luck for walking out of there but um, they were looking for our weed which was screwed into the back of a Wawa pedal so they didn't find it but they did find wow. all of our like rice cakes which they like definitely you know with like seaweed rice cakes that they thought were drugs but were not <laughs> um, and my copy of the other Hollywood which I was reading and I just I vividly remember this this cop looking at this book with like a sexy woman on the cover and like I could see him trying to come up with a way to punish me for having it and he couldn't and I think about that when I, just thinking about how lucky we are to be able to have books on us mm. and not yeah. get shot or thrown in prison. Mm -hmm. This one is for Jack and Aquinos. What is the relationship between your identity as a writer and your identity as a sex worker? How does sex work relate to your writing? And what for you is the relationship between sex work and art? You want, me. You go I, you want me to, I don't yeah. know, where do I start? <laughs> Actually, I, and I, I like this question because stripping has influenced so much of what I create. Like, obviously, the content. Like, there's nothing interesting in my life beyond stripping. Like, the rest is, like, really not exciting. <laughs> I think what helped me make single-panel comics was how to... And then same with stand-up comedy. Like, I'm, I'm also a stand-up comic. It all influences each other, and... The, like I started when I started stripping, I was writing a lot. I was journaling, and I wrote this like memoir, and like nobody wanted it, and like mm. self-published it and everything, and that's great. But the more the more I dance and the more I hustle, the more I'm like I have a finite amount of time to communicate an idea, so I have to be swift as fuck to get these twenty dollars or to get this hundred dollars. So that's what's enabled me to really compress everything that I'm thinking into like two sentences with a setup and a punchline. Because the second somebody's laughing, it's so much easier to get money out of them. Uh. Like you got it. 
You have to make them laugh. Like you're not. That's how. You, that's how I make money. People have all different kinds of hustles, but the second somebody's laughing and smiling and physically nodding their head, it's very easy to say yes to whatever's coming next. So if you're laughing and say, "Can I dance for you?" You're just gonna keep nodding your head, and there goes twenty bucks, and everybody's having a good time. So that's what's really influenced. Like I don't even write long form stuff anymore. I mean, occasionally I do, but I just. It's kind of like made me really laconic. I think is that the right word? Like succinct with what I'm communicating, yeah. because you know your time is your labor and time is money. And you know, like the time, the clock is ticking when you get to work. So it's really like I don't even do two panel comics. I do one. You know, like I just am like, what's the idea? And it's right there. And that's been really helpful in just my entire career of like how to say it, how to say it quick, because people don't care. You know, so you got to say it fast. It's almost like everyone should hire sex workers and retired sex workers to do their marketing. That's true. It's true. We can sell <laughs> anything. Um, <laughs> I never really know how to answer questions like this. Um, I actually have always wanted to be um, a sex worker, so... I am living up to my own standards, thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was in high school really fantasizing about being a Playboy girl. I really wanted to be a penthouse and a Playgo Playboy girl. It was the weirdest fucking thing. But I always wanted to be um, in the sex industry. And I grew up watching, you know, like, I'm only 25. <laughs> but I'm 25 years old. What the fuck? 25, 25. <laughs> I'm only 25. Do you know what MySpace or a burn CD No, are? I don't. <laughs> <laughs> no idea what that is. But I sometimes like find these random movies on like Turner, like this guy named Elvis. <laughs> and all these other like showgirly things. So I kind of grew up like, I want to be that girl. And then I went to a strip club. I didn't go. It was a long story about how I was like brought into a strip club. And I went up there like dancing like I was like Paula Abdul or some shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, weirdest thing. When I went to the strip club, I thought that was like the burlesque show. I was like, I want to wear these costumes. And then I realized later, oh, you want to be a burlesque dancer. You didn't really want to be a stripper. But same thing, same thing, same thing, in my personal opinion. Look at me, parents. I. <laughs> I'm doing it. I'm living it. And <laughs> living the dream. Yeah. I'm actually doing every damn thing I sought out to do, which is interesting. Not oh, yeah. quite. And you're only 25. Yeah, and I'm only 25. Oh. I'm a genius. Oh. Um, um, so, like, I'm writing and everything. Obviously, I could be making more money, but that's why you're going to go to my Patreon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're going <laughs> to go to my YouTube channel. You're going to go to Akinos.com. You're going to give me all your money. Because I can't get it from, you know, the government, so I've got to get it from you wonderful donors. Okay, that was enough. And I became an, an escort when I got really, really tired of being treated like shit by men. And I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, I'm having sex with these men. When I'm crying, like, they're nowhere to be found, and I'm getting used, and this is bullshit, so I'm going to become a whore. And then I became a whore, and I w it was like... Everything I've been taught about being a woman and using sex and, and all of this has been a fucking lie. So now I'm like, you know, living the whore life. Pretty much everything about what I do is being an escort. Every, every, every aspect of my work is about who I am outside of being a keynote. My grad school work at Goddard is about the Masters of Fine Arts and it's about gender, race, politics, 
trying to change the language around sex work, trying to normalize how we view sex workers. It's just me. There is like no separation. I'm just, I'm everything that whatever you see I'm doing, that's what you're going to see in my art. You're so amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So Aya, this one is for you. Since you don't have personal experience in the industry, what inspired you to choose sex workers as your protagonists in the Justice Hustler series? And what is the significance of many or most of the protagonists being women of color and also the, the themes being about making your own justice and making your own community? So one of the things about writing fiction and writing novels is I'm always several years into a project before I figure out what I'm really writing about. So what I figured out several years into writing the first of the series, Uptown Thief, is that, oh, lo and behold, I'm writing about my family. And um, my mom, before I was born, my mom was uh, an exotic dancer in Los Angeles. And she was always sort of out and proud about it and had a picture of herself on the living room wall in this like leopard print fur bikini with this snake, right? Oh, I know that And it was just like on the wall, you know? And you don't realize until later like, oh, everybody's mother wasn't an exotic dancer and they don't just have the picture on the wall, you know? you know, so, you know, I, it's not like I asked her, like, Mom, what's with the picture? Because you're a kid and it just is your family. But mm. at some point, she, she, like, the thing she would say, or that I remember her saying is, I danced with snakes, you know? Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> I mean, when you're a kid, you know, yeah, you watch cartoons, snakes dance, you know, the cows dance. It's just, it, it's not, I'm sure at some point in my teens, I was like, oh, but... Mm. Uh, You know, it just was part of my life. And so that was always there in the background. And so, and my mom, you know, she grew up in the projects. My mom was a hustler and she figured out how to kind of create this different life than the one that she had had. And so really, I think I was writing about my mom and my family. And there were other members of my family who also were in the sex industries and did not escape so unscathed and weren't proud and the stigma really impacted them in hard ways. And so I didn't realize until I was several years into the project, I was actually at the International Data and Violence Against Sex Workers. I saw the, there was a beautiful altar in San Francisco and I was like, oh my God, I have, you know, a family member who needs to be on that altar. And it like hit me like, okay, wow, I really... I'm writing about my family. So in my head, when I started writing the series, what I thought I was writing about was, you know, I wanted to write something that was commercial. And I knew that as a woman of color writer, like sex is the sort of expectation from women of color. We're just consistently sexualized. And I was like, fine, fuck it. I'm doing it, right? (laughs) You know, who do I have to write about in this town to get, you know, a book deal? So (laughs) I, I, I did, and I knew that I wanted to have a much, like, more sex than had been in other books that I'd been working on. And one of the things that happens with sort of a particular kind of sexualization of women of color, it's like, oh, the wind blew, and I felt so sad. You know, it's like, it's, um... I wanted, I didn't want it to be contrived and ridiculous. 
you know? And I thought, well, who has a lot of sex? Sex workers have a lot of sex. And not only is there a lot of sexual content, but there's a lot of, you know, there's, there's some real important political battles happening there. And they're like, se- it, like, if you really look at sex work, what are you looking at? You're looking at gender, you're looking at class, you're looking at race, you're looking at nationality, you're looking about power and control, you're looking at all kinds of stuff. Um, and capitalism, and I was like, ooh, yes, I want to do that, and then I want to figure out how to really um, create this subversive narrative that's happening kind of underneath a sexy beach read. So, like, on the surface, it's like, a sexy woman on the cover. Oh, look, a romantic plot. Oh, a heist, right? But underneath, we have women's health care, radical wealth redistribution. And so it just felt like there was this opportunity, particularly because, like, there's some way that sex work, the sex work community has decided, like, we are not playing by the rules, and that just looked really heroic to me in terms of a place to sort of set some genre fiction. Oh my God. <laughs> Thank you. What has your experience been trying to write about or writing about sex work and, and, and getting published or trying to get published in the book industry, uh, media, you know, magazines, online, et cetera? What's been your experience with censorship and marketing, uh, both your own marketing and what other people tell you about marketing? And why did you choose the forums or methods that you did? Yeah, I don't be trying to get my shit published on nobody's platform. <laughs> I don't want nobody owning my shit. I'm not putting no shit on no medium. You can forget it. It's on Akinos.com or the Black Hole blog or anything with my name on it because ain't nobody giving me no goddamn money, so I might as well write it for myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So Hell yeah. um, I asked my friends to share it. I pray that I will become popular one day. I think I had an opportunity to write something for uh, Thrillist. Uh, they, um, uh, what is her name? Stoya had sent over something to me saying that thrillists wanted they wanted some piece about probably like what it's how to date a sex worker or preparing them to meet an escort something like that and i wrote it in my own voice which is all like bitch dick fuck you know <laughs> all that they were like no change your mind <laughs> i was like yo fuck these people <laughs> yeah and after that, which was like two or three years ago, I never, other than maybe tits and sass, because they'll probably publish something that I put. Other than that, like, um, no. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> what about you, Jack? Oh my, I have so much to say about this topic. <laughs> I uh, I'm self-published, and I didn't want to be self-published. I wanted a book deal like everybody else. And I shopped the Beaver Show around for a year and had one agent ask for an exclusive, which is where you like can't give your shit to anybody else. And like after six or no, she said she'd get back to me in a couple of weeks, and it was like three months. And she's like, not feeling it. <sighs> no notes, nothing. And I was like, fuck y'all, I'm so bad. <laughs> I don't understand how you could not be feeling the Beaver like, Show. By well, the way, so, <laughs> it's so really no, it's really good. The really day good. I decided to self-publish, I was sitting at the bar at the club, and I was like, I think I'm just gonna do it myself. And the girl goes, Yeah, girl, take that money for yourself, because it's like we were strip clubs take so much of your money, like you're mm-hmm. and like 
like the concept of like having an agent is just like in stripper terms, it's just like having a pimp. Like who's taking forty percent? Right. Who's taking twenty percent? What are they doing? What are they actually doing? Are mm-hmm. they helping you? So I self-publish and then I've continued to self-publish and it's been great. And I just actually the Beaver Show is now available on Audible. Yeah, which is awesome. And I just got like it in the mail, like the, the CD. You can burn it. Um, and but I realized the genre they gave me was erotica. Well, like if you guys it's have read the Beaver one. Show, it's not fucking erotica. There's like one and a half oh. orgasms in this book. Okay, like there's really it's like it's not. It's not erotica. And then that's just like an example of people not knowing what the fuck to do with you. Mm-hmm. They're like, I don't know, this is like, mm, like, beaver show. You're like, no, it's really funny. Like, I think it is. I don't know. <laughs> but, um, funny. yeah, and I've continued to self-publish. And every now and again, I would love to have, like, representation. And as I try to take my content to new media, I'm like, how the hell do you do this without an agent? But, like, I don't know, man. I think self-publishing is great. And like it's not because there's so I mean, one of my friends has an has an agent right now and they're just tearing her shit up over mm-hmm. and over again. And the rejection we get as sex workers and the real like when you and when you realize that like you have to cast a really wide net to actually get somebody and then like one person telling you that your your chapter isn't good enough or your book isn't good enough, like we're really familiar with that rejection. But like it's not like some other person has the answer for you. So I'm really proud of being a self-published author, but that has taken a really long time to get there. Like I think like there's some stigma there. Mm, yes. Like there's a some DIY stigma, stigma, you know, yeah. when you have to like buy your own ISBN and like right. they're like, you know, who published this? You're like, create space, it was printed in South Carolina. Like, you know, it's just like but hey, I get to keep all that money to myself. That's it's cool. Right. I know people That's chasing right. after royalty checks yeah. and like Amazon just pays you on the 29th of every month. It's a glorious day. Yes. yes. Um <laughs> awesome. Um, so I highly recommend self-publishing, even if it's not perfect. It's never going to be perfect. So just put it out there, and everybody will email you with where the typos are. So don't worry about having. <laughs> that yeah. um, yes. So many typos. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm not sorry. Yeah. You, you get it. So I um, have an eight-year-old daughter, and when I was trying to sell this book, I had like a baby and I was like I cannot self-publish because I can't hustle like I need to drop this into the machine and the machine needs to be like dun, 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 dun. <laughs> like moving it down the assembly line while I'm nursing so that was my vision right and you know because I um and I struck you know I struggled to get published I struggled to get an agent so I you know I was like going to all the conferences and you know I heard somebody say basically like you might have to query a hundred agents and I was like Mm-mm. okay you know and I did I queried a hundred and three agents wow. and none of them ended up being my agent my agent ended up being the hundred and fourth agent who was like working with one of the agents who was like maybe you'll like this mm. and that you know, and it it's been great. Um, she kind of gets me, but one of the things that I did before I even reached out for an agent is I picked some. I basically decided to drop all these politics into a kind of a genre form that I am developing, which is this feminist heist, right? So it's like got this really kind of traditional romance arc 
But then I'm also, of course, messing with the gender stuff in that. But it delivers the feels, right? That people read romance for, you need this to happen, it's gonna happen. And then you need this to happen, it's gonna happen, right? I, it's a romance, so they get together in the end, right? I'm not spoiling it, right? It's a heist, so they are gonna steal something. And it's a feminist heist, so they're gonna get away with it. You know, so it's like, I'm, so there's, there was something already that I was choosing to do that was marketable. I had already decided to sell out, right? So, yes. And with that, I also decided to do this stealth thing. So it's kind of a Trojan horse, right? So it's like, sexy book, except, you know, ending capitalism, you know? So um, those things are happening simultaneously in the book and in the series. And so anyway, that happened. So I got the agent, she got me, and we were like, we're gonna send this out and we have no idea where it, could where it would land, right? I have an MFA. So the writing, like the piece that I read, you know, was one of the pieces that was less heisty and more sort of, you know, um, more literary. Um, so it's just this mix. So we went out, she sent it far and wide. She's pretty well connected. We had no idea. And the rejections came in, like, interested, nah. Um, there was this one young woman of color who was like a super junior editor at a big five press and she loved it and she wanted it and she took it to the higher ups and they were like nah um and i think you know it's out there for mainstream publishers for a number of reasons and i think in large part because it's women of color from the hood yes. in the center of it right it's like not just women of color, but like women of color who are, you know, from low income communities in the center um, in a way that's just not, that we don't often see, um, except within very particular narratives of people of color, right? So people couldn't quite wrap their head around it, which, you know, I was like, okay. So that happened. It was like this huge slew of rejections. And then uh, finally, Kensington Books, which has a street lit imprint, Daphina, expressed interest. And, you know, I hadn't intended to be writing street lit per se or for the street lit genre, but I wasn't mad. I was like, yeah, hey, sounds good. So um, there are two, you know, it's, it's uh, speaking of stigma, so there, it's double sided, right? So this is a very, street lit is a very stigmatized part of the literary industry. Like the genre in general is stigmatized and street lit is extra stigmatized. And there are some, I don't want to say reasons, there are some parallel worlds of justification, right? Which is often true in genre. Like there's some stuff that's crappy, right? There's also some literary stuff that's crappy. Yo. So, um, but you know, there's some, there's some tropes in street lit that are like, okay, that's, you know, not feeling it, but I, I was actually excited about the opportunity to get in there. And there have been, you know, other than being stigmatized, which really, you know, we're talking about stigma, any kind of stigma is just, you know, it's often racist or sexist or classist at its core with some surface justification. Well, we have to shit on you because you know, this is really a reasonable justification, but it, it's really always about, you know, bigotry. But there have been these incredible bonuses and one has been this is an imprint that markets 
to young women of color in low-income communities. And time and time again, I hear authors of color who get big five publishing deals talk about how they're then uh, marketed to white audiences and that the industry professionals they're working with have no idea how to market their work about their experience and their community to their community. So okay. it's great. Like I, you know, I heard from um, some of the folks uh, who are doing sex worker outreach in prisons that like my book was really popular. It's um, on their wish in, list. Yeah, it's I, in and I was just like, oh my god, that's better than any award. Knowing that yeah. incarcerated uh, folks in the community are like feeling my book. I was just like mm -hmm. crying. Phone with my mom. Mama! Right. Um, so that has been this incredible gift. And the other incredible gift is the genre clock does not fucking play. They want a book a year. Right. Which is why Uptown Thief 2016, The Boss 2017, The Accidental Mistress 2018. And I just got approval for my outline for book four, Side Chick Nation, which is about <laughs> which is about the hurricane in Puerto Rico. And as interpreted through these different sex worker characters. So like the genre clock has forced me to be more productive than I ever thought I could be. Which is why, Tina, when you were like, what you know, oh my God, these books, right? They're like, okay, bring on the books. And so and we some want of these them. I, well, yeah. and it's yeah. it's a joy. And the other thing that I have to say about um, you know, being in a stigmatized part of the literary industry is like the bar could not be lower. And that's a gift to any writer, right? Because, you know, you're, it's like the pressure that some of my friends who are like literary writers, we expect great things of you, so-and-so. The literary industry does not expect shit from me. And so it's like, oh, great, I got another book. you know. And, and it gives me this space not to be under a particular kind of quality pressure that lets me play and... Um, and I just don't have time to like worry if it's good, right? And that has been an unexpected gift. So that's my publishing journey. Well, it's hella fucking good. It's hella fucking good. I'm so happy I could stay here all night. One more question. Oh, this is so such enthusiasm. Yes. I do not. <laughs> Actually, I would love to learn. <laughs> Big ideas. Oh my what? god, so many things. I don't know. What do I? Weed. <laughs> you know what's wait? But it's funny how you were saying that like like stripping is is really perfect for like the single panel comic because I I was sort of thinking as you were saying that like being a dominatrix is kind of like a long form like mm -hmm. pot, like orientation anyway. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean. The first thing that comes to my mind is Twitter, but it would really be old Twitter because new Twitter is now four sentences, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But uh, 140 was, yeah, I mean, tweeting really got me how to like boil it all the way down. Mm -hmm. um, and like the haiku form, I love it. You know, I, I really enjoy Twitter. I'm not a Facebook person because it just, what do I have to say? And I've got only 140 characters. So mm -hmm. as a practice. To add to that, Twitter drafts. 
Like, you don't have to tweet it right away. <laughs> like, sit on that shit for 30 minutes, yes. and you can. it will be better. Mm. You it know, never it gets worse. It doesn't, no. You just let it sit. I sit on jokes. It's funny, because, like, jokes seem like they just... You just thought of it right then and there. You're like, no, I've been working on this joke for three fucking years. Like, it's been... It takes time, so don't have... And, like... And, and you have to say it. I find saying it out loud mm. is really helpful. That's why comedy is really helpful. Because if it yeah. doesn't laugh, you know it sucks. Mm. You know, if there's so that's a really great way of just sharing or talking to a friend who loves your sense of humor and like who has one too and like wants to like vibe off of that is like really fruitful for me. Yeah, no, I post on Facebook in long form. I'm sorry. <laughs> I got nothing. Like there's a whole books cursing people out. So nope. I think the only thing that has really helped me is um, when other people go on and on and on and have like a lot of circular logic and I'm like, I'm so bored. God, is this what it's like to listen to me? <laughs> and, then I, and then I'm motivated to work on it. Those Instagram videos actually, because mm -hmm. they're like, what, 60 seconds? Yeah. Talk to kids too. Kids have really <laughs> short attention spans. Like, or dudes at strip clubs, you know? Yeah. Like don't try to impress yourself. Just speak your own like s simple sentences, aphorisms. Like not like let go of the polysyllabic words. Like mm. you're not trying to impress yourself. You're trying to get an idea across and get that you know? money. I have like a yeah, get that money. You don't they flowery words. They fixate on the word. And Just imagine that like the the like you know the door is lowering on the plexiglass window and you got to get them to put more coins in there and then yeah, the back page ads too. Yeah, they keep you on point. Oh, yeah, you gotta like get to the point. Sell yeah. it, sell it, sell it. Yeah, Done. try writing. Yeah, like imagine that you are gonna be a sex worker and mm -hmm. write an ad for yourself. It's probably a very good exercise in self knowledge. <laughs> it was for me, and who knows? Maybe then you'll be like, I, oh well, I should mind. I should put this out there, you make the should. money. Should yeah, yeah. All should be whores. We all should be whores. We are. Exactly. We should yeah. be. Yeah. <laughs> Every, yeah, everyone <laughs> is a whore inside. You just need to like bring it to the Rent's surface. Expensive. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's true. So on that note, I really want to make sure to thank McNally Jackson, this incredible bookstore. While you are here, please buy a book you've been wanting to buy for yourself or someone that you love or someone that you hate. Like, buy some fucking books. Buy me a book. And, yeah, buy like he knows a book. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Jack has stickers. Yes. This yeah. is so exciting. Oh, I, I also have free stickers, swag. Um, help yourself. I love a good sticker. I and I really, I want to, I want to, I want to thank Nora again so much for organizing this and making it happen. And I, yes, and I, I just want to make sure that I thank Justine, who has recorded the audio of this today. And if you subscribe to Why Are People Into That, my podcast, you will be able to hear this again. I, I have a wonderful volunteer who transcribes also. So if you, if you yourself are hearing impaired or have uh, hearing impaired loved ones, then uh, we've got you on that, or if you just prefer to read. And thank you all for supporting sex workers' rights and global decriminalization, because I know that you do. And do you want to say one more thing? Uh, yeah, I don't know how this works, but I have like half-naked pictures of myself in the back that people can potentially buy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's it. Go shop. Thank Bye. you. Thank you so much for being here.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.